Bites. Here I am with Jared Dillian. Jared, it's great to have you back on the program. It's good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's start with, uh, I'd love to hear about your latest book. You just put out your third book. It's called Those Bastards. Um, 69 essays that you've collected. And I wanted you to share at a high level, what, what's the purpose of the book and why did you assemble this? Well, this uh, I'm finishing up in MFA in creative writing. Uh, I'll be done very soon. And this was actually part of a class called Writing for Digital Communication, where the goal of the class was to have a blog. Um, so I never really had a blog before. I mean, I have a newsletter, but that's different. So I started a blog on Substack and I started writing just essays about non-financial stuff because I write about financial stuff all the time. You know, I, that's my job. And uh, just about life and meaning and uh, it's a whole range of topics. And during the class, I had written about 12 blog entries, but I started to attract a pretty big following. Like it was, I was getting a lot of subscribers and I decided to keep going. And over the course of a year, I had written um, about 60 essays and I said, I'm going to turn this into a book. Um, you know, and essay collections don't usually sell that well, you know, unless you're really famous, like Chuck Klosterman or something like that. But, um, but this one, I felt pretty strongly that it would do well. Um, and I also included 10 essays that were not on the Substack that were just new to the book. Um, so the book was released April 1st. And the reception has just been fantastic. It's it's just like way beyond expectations. And the reviews have been great. You know, the interesting thing is, is that this is my third book. Yeah. And the Amazon reviews have just been off the charts. People love it. And it's also, it's a very uplifting book. I mean, it's a, it's a feel-good book, um, which is not something I usually do. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah. the whole thing has been great. So, Yeah, your, your previous book, All the Evil in the World. Uh, wasn't focused so much on human positivity. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is also worth a read. Look, I got to ask you. So, as the author of two previously published books, um, "All the Evil in the World" and "Street Freak" were your two previous books. Um, you've been a, a successful newsletter writer for a very long time, and I believe right now have three publications. Is that correct? Uh, I have three paid ones and one free one. So technically four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So given that, what inspired you to go back to school and get your MFA in creative writing? I mean, I have to imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that from a career standpoint, you're, you're leagues ahead of your peers in the class. No, or is that not the case? I'm just curious. No, that is, that is the case. Um, you know, most of my classmates are in their twenties, early thirties. Yeah. Uh, they don't they don't really have a record of publication. The reason I decided to do this was when I graduated from college, I really wanted to be a writer and I wanted to get an MFA when I was 22 years old. Um, and I started looking at MFA programs and I told my mom my plan. I said, look, I want to be a writer. And she says, that is a terrible idea uh, <laughs> because you're going to be broke and it's going to be hard. And so. You know, I had an interest in finance, so I applied to business school instead, and I went and I got my MBA, um, and then I went to Wall Street. So, um, but this was, you know, an aspect of my life that, it, I mean, it was basically the path not taken. This was, 
you know, something that I really wanted to do when I was younger. And I said, I'm going to go back and do it. Uh, and it's been, it's really, really been worthwhile. So. Love that. Okay. And then, so yeah. I have to ask then, you know, with your present platform as a financial author and newsletter writer, um, have you taken any tools or did you have any revelations through the course of revisiting school to get your MFA? Almost it sounds like for sport, the way you describe it, you know, have you had any revelations that will alter what you do in the future now from a career standpoint? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I got two books out of this MFA program. So those bastards and also my next book, which is called no worries, how to live a stress-free financial life. That was, that was my thesis in my MBA in my, sorry, my MFA program. Um, so like I, I am going to continue writing. Like I actually had a seven year gap between books um, between all the evil of this world and those bastards there, it was, there were seven years in between those books. And, you know, I'm, you know, I really want to start cranking out about a book a year, maybe every two years. Um, I want really? to, I want to do a short story collection, you know, for one, I want to do a second book of essays. I want to do a sequel to no worries. So yeah, there's a lot of things I want to do. What is No Worries, the key to a stress-free financial life about? Well, if Maybe you it's self-explanatory. <laughs> well, like, I, if you I can mean, break it down for me, that'd be, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of not self-explanatory. So like if you go in the personal finance section of a bookstore, you see books by Robert Kiyosaki, Dave Ramsey. You see The Millionaire Next Door. And a lot of what those books said has been accepted as wisdom, which is a lot of it's all wrong. Like if you read The Millionaire Next Door, it's, you know, it's a series of stories about these people who basically they didn't make a lot of money, but they saved religiously and they were just cheap. They were cheap as hell. And they lived in a tiny house and they had one suit from Walmart and they had a 20 year old car. And they had a million dollars in the bank. And they said, look, like anybody in the United States can be a millionaire. And what my book really is about is about a couple things is one, like maybe being a millionaire isn't necessarily the be all and end all of what you want to do. Because if you if that's your goal, then it's going to distort your relationship with money and you're going to be stressing about money all the time. Every time you go out to lunch, every time you put gas in your car, every time you go Christmas shopping, you're going to be doing, you're going to be making these decisions about what can I spend, right? And the premise of my book is that it's not a million small decisions that determine whether you're rich. It's a couple of big decisions, okay? It's buying a house, it's buying a car, and going to college and getting student loans. And if you get those three things right, then you don't have to worry about ordering an appetizer at lunch. You don't have to worry about getting a coffee on the way to work. You just do the math. If you get a house that costs $100,000 more, that is worth like 70 years of coffee. Okay. So it's not a million small decisions. It's a couple of big decisions. And if you just focus on those big decisions and getting it right, then you don't have stress. You're not, you're not feeling this stress, this daily stress about, oh, I can't buy this because it costs too much or whatever. So. 
Yeah, I love that. And I, I love that mentality. Sweat the big stuff so you don't have to sweat the small stuff, right? Yep. If you get the big stuff right, then don't worry about the latte, um, which is, yep. I think, really valuable and sound advice because it's very easy to be distracted and think you're being disciplined and smart by by um, focusing on the small stuff, right? The penny you save here, you know, I don't buy the coffee, I make the coffee, whatever that thing is for you. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the big stuff then. I'd love to pull on that thread if I could. And you mentioned buy the house, buy the car and how you manage student loans being the third bucket that you ticked mentioned today. Can we start with the house? Where would you point people to in terms of you know, making a sound decision? How do you approach that decision? How do you know you're going about it right? Well, basically, you know, people, people feel as if they're not saving money. People, people think they're saving money when they're experiencing physical discomfort. Okay. Like I'm driving along the road. I'm thirsty. I want to stop at Burger King and get a soda, but the soda costs $3 and I'm not going to spend $3. So I'm just going to be thirsty and I'm experiencing physical discomfort. Yeah. And people start to equate that feeling of physical discomfort with saving money. Okay. But the reality is, is that people can give up large luxuries, but they can't give up small luxuries, right? Like people can't give up the coffee at Dunkin' Donuts every day. Like it's too hard. It, 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 you need coffee. You need the caffeine. You need to go to the bathroom or whatever you drink the coffee. Like, but you can live in a house that's 400 square feet smaller and you're not going to be living in that house thinking this house sucks. It's too small. Like you're going to be perfectly comfortable in that house. Uh, it's, it's the same thing with cars. Like you can drive. Uh, it, people spend 4% of their time driving cars it really the amount of time you spend in a car is insignificant you can drive a twenty thousand dollar toyota instead of an eighty thousand dollar bmw that's a large luxury and you're not going to be in this car thinking this car sucks i should have it's a play it's it's a way to get from a to b so you give up the large luxuries but not the small luxuries and then it doesn't feel like you're experiencing this discomfort okay I get that. And so if I were to, to phrase this back to you, you know, what you might encourage people to do is be conservative with those big purchases. And therefore yep. you can stretch on the day to day, small lifestyle items that aren't going to, aren't going to really break the budget, but can increase your quality of life. If you feel like going to Starbucks today, just go, don't sweat it. Don't think you have to stay home and make Folgers, you know, go ahead and treat yourself because you've been smart with the, the house transaction, because you've been smart with the car transaction. Is that, does that summarize it a little bit? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Okay. What now I know you focus a lot on, on, uh, I don't want, I don't want to say the, the like the uh, psychology of decision-making, but like mental health of the investor and, and, you know, this kind of may fall close to that bucket. What do you have to say to somebody who says, yeah, but Jared, the BMW motivates me, right? If I stretch on the car, right? It's going to fire me up. I'll feel a certain way. Um, I'll feel like a winner, right? And when I feel like a winner, I perform better. And so there's more utility than just driving from A to B. I get the psychological benefit from feeling, feeling like a winner. And so I show up more aggressive. I show up in that alpha mindset 
And, um, and I deliver more and my ROI on my time is better because I feel like a boss in my boss car. What do you have to say to somebody who <laughs> might respond with that? Well, I think there's a certain class of people where debt is a motivator to them. Okay. Right. So they have a big house, a big car, lots of student loans, credit card debt, personal loans, whatever. They have this huge monthly nut yeah. and the debt serves as a motivator for them to work hard. But my take on that is that debt, there's two sources of financial stress. There's only two. One is risk in the, in the financial markets and the other is debt. Okay. And if, yeah. you don't, if you don't have debt, then you don't have stress, right? So mm -hmm. sure, the, the person that buys the $80,000 BMW, like, you know, it, it motivates them to work harder, but it also increases the risk that something could go wrong. They could lose their job, they could, you know, et cetera. The car could get repossessed. So if you you can't totally eliminate debt, but if you minimize it, you reduce your financial stress. Yeah. Okay. I like that. And it's funny you mentioned debt as a motivator. Reminded me of this uh this cliche I heard a few years ago, probably like 15 years ago at this point. What's the fastest way to make a million dollars? It's borrow a million dollars and have to pay it back. I think it's probably true, right? <laughs> it does fire people up. Um, what, you know, what's a healthy relationship with debt? We live in a super debt reliant world. I mean, credit fuels most people's transactions, especially the big ones. Um, do you have any perspective on you know what a healthy relationship with debt might look like? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that what Dave Ramsey does is an unhealthy relationship with debt. Okay. Um, you know, trying to eliminate all debt, to cut up your credit cards, to live off the grid, pay everything with cash. You know, I can tell you that wealthy, successful people don't cut up their credit cards. Like they just yes. don't like it's not something that they do. That's that's something that, you know, low income people do, you know. So that's an unhealthy relationship with debt. Debt allows you to achieve certain things. It allows you. Basically, you can you can have something today and pay for it later. So a lot of 90 percent of houses are purchased with debt, and that's fine. I mean, the thirty year fixed rate mortgage is one of the greatest financial innovations of all time, you know. But it's when it's when you have debt on top of debt on top of debt, and that's when it increases your financial stress. I have a couple guidelines in the book. You know, I talk about how your housing costs should be no more than twenty five percent of your income that your transportation costs should be no more than 10% of your income. You know, just some simple guidelines. Um, you know, that's in some places, you know, I think you're in Vancouver, right? Like, you I'm know, not far. I'm 45 minutes north of Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of it's kind of hard to have your housing costs be less than 25% of your income where you live. You know, that's mm -hmm. pretty much true for all of Canada, mm -hmm. but you have to you have to try. So, mm -hmm. Okay. And then that third bucket, uh, just because st the student loan bubble is kind of a contentious issue right now, any counsel on approaching that? And, and I was surprised actually to hear you mention um, university and student loans as the third big bucket that people should focus on. But what would you encourage people to focus on? I mean, you well, obviously spend a lot on school. You've had you're in your second master's program. Yeah, what I what I tell people is, is that I, I break it down into tiers. Okay. So if you get into a top tier school, a Harvard or Yale or Stanford, something like that, 
chances are you're going to get financial aid, but even if you don't, you should go because you will make many multiples of that in your career because going to Harvard or any of those schools isn't really about the education. It's about the connections that you're going to make. And the unemployment rate for these people is pretty much zero, right? If you go to a second tier school, like a good state school, like uh, University of Connecticut or something like that, then what I say is that you should only take out $40,000 in debt to go to school. Now, if it costs more, you can pay cash, but you can only have $40,000 in debt. And the reason I say that is because you should be able to pay it off in five years. Any student loans, you should be able to pay off in five years. So $8,000 a year, five years, assuming you're making like 60, 70, $80,000 a year, something like that, you should be able to pay off in five years. If you go to a third tier school, and this is really true of law schools. There's a lot of third tier law schools where you pay $150,000, $200,000 to go to these schools. I mean, if your earnings potential coming out of there is going to be $40,000, then you can't, you can't sustain that debt load. It's just impossible. So the only way you can go to those schools is if you're doing it completely debt free. So that's the rubric. You know, I like that because I've been looking at post-secondary education with a critical eye recently, just given how um, competitive they become for for student dollars, right? And you look at some of the tactics being employed. Like, I don't know where a school like LSU would fall. If that's second tier, third tier. Probably second tier, yeah. Okay, I had no idea. But, you know, part of the attraction at LSU is they're like uh, a $10 million water park they built, including uh, a lazy river and the letters LSU that students can float down. <laughs> it's like an amusement park, right? And you think about this, like that's the pitch, right? To the student who graduated from high school that has access to the uh, very accessible student loans, you know, seemingly infinite cash from their perspective at that point in their life. They're making their first what's now become like a, a luxury purchase to these country club style university campuses, yeah. if unless, and so what I like about what you did is you compartmentalize it though. You're like, yeah, school can be really, really expensive, but if you're going to a Harvard, for example, you're going to earn it back and you know, the reputation, you're, you're buying the connections, you're buying the network, um, but be a bit more trepidatious. And so, yeah, you're looking at a second tier school, limit your debt exposure, make sure you're on a, uh, you know, whatever you're borrowing, you can foresee paying that back in five years in a third tier school, just pay cash if that's the direction you want to go. Yep. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the sustainability of post-secondary education, given, you know, what I just shared about LSU as one example, that universities, in order to secure more students, are getting more competitive with the amenities versus the education and the return on investment. They're providing a four-year experience that may not always set you up for a career. And is that you know, how long can that game go? A lot, a lot of people have been waiting this to blow up for a while. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's not going to change until see. Basically, federal student lo student loans were nationalized by the government in two thousand nine. So if you're borrowing money, you're borrowing from the government, and the government will theoretically loan against any amount of money that the school costs. So just like a dumb example, if Harvard cost a million dollars a year, the government would lend you a million dollars a year. There's, there's no limits. There's no credit checks. 
They don't do credit checks on borrowers, right? So these are unknown borrowers with unknown credit histories. And they'll essentially lend an unlimited amount of money. So as long as the government is lending an unlimited amount of money, then the schools can basically grow in, in, you know, they can have lazy rivers and things like that and charge whatever they want. And that's why higher education has been costing more and more and more every year. So until that system changes, the, the dynamic doesn't change at all. Yeah. And as long as the funds are available as they've been, you know, and student loans, I believe, are with you for life, right? You can declare personal bankruptcy. Uh, you can pass away and those loans are either passed down to your kin and they survive bankruptcy. You can declare personal bankruptcy. Your student loans don't go anywhere. They stick with you, if I understand the U.S. Yep, that's right. correctly, right? Which is amazing to hamstring the next generation. This is how I see it. Tell me if, if you think I'm off base here, but it's almost like eating your own kids. Just to, you know, attach $100,000, $150,000 of debt to them at an age when they're not really equipped to make a sound judgment call on whether or not that's smart. Maybe they borrow $150,000 to go to a third tier school or a second tier school, whatever that is, right? But this is the path that's been sold to them as in their best interest. Get the post-secondary education, borrow the money. There's no interest payments till you graduate. It's a good idea. Set yourself up for success. They go to LSU. They float in the river for four years, Right. Now they're saddled with this debt and they can never escape it. Even in a worst case scenario, personal bankruptcy, they it, it sticks with them. You're keeping this population submerged. You're keeping their head beneath the water and you're really making it tough to elevate. Uh, the generation is going to eventually be carrying the country. But instead, you know, you're kind of burying them in sand. Does that make yeah. sense? That? Yeah, that's I mean, you can see that in the numbers like I don't have the, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head. But the rates of household formation and home buying out of the millennials is much, much lower than it was for Generation X to the Booners, right. right? So basically, they have this student debt, which they can't pay off. They can't get married. They can't have a family. They can't earn more income. And, you know, in the book, I, I, I tell one of, the, one of the greatest personal finance questions of all time is, I have a mortgage and I have a car loan and I have student loans and I have credit card debt. Which yes. one do I which one do I pay off first? And I tell people pay off the student loans first. And the other thing about the student loans is that back in 2009 I think um we started this thing called what's it called? Um gosh, what is the name of it? Um sort of like a minimum payment plan. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. But um, basically, let's say you had $100,000 in debt and the payment was going to be $1,000 a month. Now what the government does is they say, well, we means test this and you make $50,000 a year. So you only have to pay, make, you only have to pay $400 a month. So what happens is it actually negatively amortizes and the interest that you're not paying gets added to the back end of the loan. So people pay on their student loans for 10 years and the loan actually gets bigger. Income-based repayment plans. That's what they're called. Income-based repayment plans. And a lot of people are experiencing this. And, you know, the government, you know, we're from the government. We're here to help. Like they tried to help out borrowers by getting them on these income-based repayment plans. But it actually made things worse because the loans were negatively amortizing. If you were to speculate whether or not 
that was well-intentioned, uh, a well-intentioned program that the overseers of had some shortcomings and short sights and didn't, didn't expect the 25-year-old to be caught in that situation where they could actually be thinking they're paying down a loan for 10 years when actually their debt's increasing? Or would you maybe speculate there was some strategy there where this is going to be an effective income generating exercise for us at a government? No, level? no. I, you know, look, I used to work in the government and, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you have a lot of people impugn sort of bad intentions to people who work in the government. They think they're sort of like evil and nefarious and stuff. I can tell you that the people in the government are the most well-intentioned people of all time. They're trying to help, but I don't know whose quote it was, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's what happened here. All right. I'm with you, man. All right. All right. So then I just have to pull on one last thread on this one. You said um, one of the most classic questions of personal finances. I have, I have a mortgage, I have a car payment, I have credit card debt and I have student loans. Which should I pay down first? My instinct was get rid of the credit card uh, debt as it's likely the highest interest rate. But you said student loans. So why would you make that call? I would say credit card second because of that reason. Okay. Okay. Um, but the student loans, it, I, I, I would say to pay the student loans first because you cannot discharge them in bankruptcy. It's the most dangerous form of debt. You know, yeah. I mean, credit credit card debt is negotiable okay because it's unsecured lending the credit card companies have nothing to seize if you owe them forty thousand dollars and you can't pay it's not your problem it's their problem right sure. yeah so um you know you can negotiate with a credit card company you can call them up and say i'm having trouble paying my bills and they will put you on a plan they will reduce the payment they'll get rid of the, the fees and stuff like you can't do that with a mortgage. You can't do that with a car loan. You can't do it with student loans. So there's some things you can do to manage the credit card debt. So yes, I mean, pay it off, you know, not first, but second, because the interest rates are so high. But if worse comes to worse and you declare bankruptcy, that's the credit card company's problem. So yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I want to pivot to uh, some kind of macro stuff. Um I want to talk about the debt ceiling. So today is May 17th, just for context. I think we're going to be publishing this, you know, within a day or two. So it will not be dated. But as we approached the uh, the debt ceiling, Jared, I was expecting a lot of political theatrics around this debate, as we always see, right? And then the same result that we've always seen. I think in the previous 78, um, the previous 78 times we reached the debt ceiling, we, you know, extended it every single time if I've got that correct. Right now, we're having a similar debate, debate uh, similar political theatrics. Biden's canceling his Asian trip short, flying home to help sort out the mess. Um, what are you seeing, though? Because I know pre-hitting record, I said, what, what are some things that you're most focused on right now? And you said the debt ceiling. So I'm curious what your perspective is and what you're watching. Well, I think the, I think the probability of a default is the highest it's been since I've been in the business, or maybe ever. Okay. Um, and I looked at this about a week and a half ago and CDS were pricing in about a 4% chance of a default. I think it's higher than that. I think it's at least 10, maybe 20% at this point. Um, 
you know, I'm not a, this is where it really helps to be very well versed in politics. And I'm, I'm kind of not, I'm just an amateur, like a lot of people. Um, all I can say is, you know, McCarthy and Biden are just incredibly far apart. Um, and then also you had Trump weigh in a couple of days ago where set, where he said he would default, you know, like without hesitation. Um, if you were the, if he were the Republicans, so um, I'm not entirely confident that they will come to an agreement before June 1st. And after that, I don't really know what happens. I don't really know what happens. Um, June 1st isn't a hard and fast date as to when the government starts to run out of money. That was sort of an arbitrary date that Janet Yellen picked. So maybe it's a week later or two weeks later or something like that. Okay. Um, but... Nonetheless, you know, there is the chance that a four week T-bill will not mature at par like that is a possibility. And if that happens, then you're going to have money market funds that are going to break the buck. And if that happens, they're probably going to gate redemptions and prevent people from getting their money out, at least until the debt ceiling passes. So um, I think that's all within the realm of possibility. You know, um, and this is this is one of these things, you know, in markets, we're often in these situations where you have an event coming up and there's a 90 percent chance that everything's going to be fine and a 10 percent chance that something horrible is going to happen. And you try to you have to figure out how to hedge the possibility that something horrible is going to happen. Um, and this is really hard to do. I can tell you that I took all my money out of money market funds took it all out. It's just sitting in cash in my brokerage account um, because I didn't want it to get gated. So. Which you feel like is a possibility. Yeah. Now, just your comment on Trump, a any substance there? Do you think the Republicans will take some lead from his comments or is it just like anybody can be an armchair quarterback? If you're not having to throw the ball, you could say all the stuff you would do, but you're not on the seat, so who cares? You can say anything. No, I, I, I think the Republicans will follow his lead. I, I think they absolutely they, they will. Um, McCarthy is, you know, uh, this goes without saying, you know, he's more on the left in the Republican Party. Uh, I think, like, he as Speaker is more likely to do a deal than somebody like Chip Roy or somebody like that. Um, but Still, like, they're very far apart. Okay. So in some kind of a default scenario, I think a lot of people expect it to be kind of an all or nothing event, right? The U.S. defaults, and this happens in some sort of entirety. Whereas, you know, what is more likely to occur? Say the U.S. defaults over the course of three to four to five days, right? And then we reach a debt ceiling agreement. But over the course of that three to four to five days or a week or maybe even two weeks, say it's it's that long, you know, what is some of the fallout that you might expect? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, because it's uh, never happened before. Yeah. 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 I, I can't I can't like do a scenario analysis on this. I really I really don't know what's going to happen. Um, we'll find out. So. Oh. Okay. So then in a scenario where you don't know what's going to happen, you know, you talked about hedging your heavy cash and you're not heavy any anywhere else. Like where else do you put wealth in a scenario where you feel like you don't have any clarity on what could happen next? 
So, uh, you know, I have a stock portfolio and over the last few weeks, I've been gradually selling some of my uh, weaker positions, uh, just reducing my equity exposure. You know, I still have plenty of stocks that I like for the long term. I'm just going to hold no matter what. But I would say I've reduced my equity exposure by about 20 or 30 percent. Um, and I'm probably happy with everything else that I have. Um, and the 20 or 30 percent that you've sold, are they... Is there any um, any parallels there? It's like same industry, uh, same nope. or exposure, nope. or just no? Nope. Okay, okay. How did you get to the conclusion to sell that twenty to thirty percent? Uh, well, some of it was um, you know cover calls. Stocks got called away, and I simply just didn't reinvest it in something else. Uh, some of it was stocks that just reached my target price, and I said uh, that's enough. So. Yeah. What are you holding right now? What's uh what did you keep? Uh what did I keep? I have uh I have a lot of gold, which I think is uh, a good thing to have in in a, in a debt ceiling negotiation, although price action the last couple of days hasn't been that great. I don't I'm not a big fan of the chart here. Um I can tell I can tell you that one of one of the stocks that I sold which I held for about two years, which I was very bullish on was Airbnb. Um, I sold Airbnb. um, Finally just lost patience with it. Um, So why, why do you think that uh, thesis has not played out the way you expected? Uh, That was really poor risk management. Um, You know, I was up about 50% on that position at one point and I got greedy and I didn't sell, and uh, now it was below my cost basis. And I said, you know, really, like, you know, I'm a sentiment guy, and the just the volume of the chatter about people being dissatisfied with Airbnb experiences and you know local regulations and stuff like that. It was the chatter was getting very loud. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, what are your thoughts on the commodities market right now? in any directions within that that you're focused? Love to talk about that. So um, so commodities did very well 20 and 2021 because we had a big inflationary impulse in the form of the stimulus from the federal government during the pandemic. Um, that was really what kicked off inflation. And pretty much all commodities went up a few years ago in 2022 and 2023, it's been a bear market in commodities because we're actually experiencing disinflation. Um, you know, I've actually, uh, I've gotten bullish on oil. I think we're somewhere near the lows in oil, whether it's in the 60s or 70s, I think we're pretty close. But I don't think that commodities meaningfully rally until we get another inflationary impulse. So I don't think we're going to get more stimulus checks. Maybe it's the Fed cutting that does it. I'm not really sure. But I think commodities are, you know, just generally pretty cheap right now. But I'm not taking any positions at the moment. So I'm just waiting. And what are you waiting to see? Are you waiting to see the Fed start hinting they're going to begin cuts like you're, you're waiting to see some trigger point that may begin that inflationary impulse i'm waiting to see that i'm waiting for the charts to form a base form a bottom uh you know like i was looking at the wheat chart the other day and you know we have six dollar wheat which is just nuts like i think that's incredibly cheap but 
the chart still isn't great. It's uh, it it's it's not bottoming. It's not forming a base. Like I need to I need to see these charts form a base and turn up uh, be before I do anything. Yeah, I'm shocked at the weed price, and I would have anticipated um, a very different market, I suppose, just given the uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war, which I believe accounts for 25% of um, of the global wheat supply. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Jared, why we're seeing such weak wheat prices when no. the order of the no. world's market is compromised? Uh, it's 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 a really it's a it's a great question. Okay. I mean, a, a lot of it is sentiment. You know, um, I actually I I really hate like sort of pounding my own chest on trades, but I was actually long wheat when the invasion started. Okay. Uh, it was one of my one of my best trades of all time. Um, the Economist came out with their cover with wheat on the cover right around the highs, and sure. I said oh, I said okay, I'm out of here. Um, and like, that's, that's how sentiment works. So, uh, you know, what do we need to see for it to bottom? Well, maybe another economist cover, maybe, I mean, you need to see sentiment to really get bombed out, you know, before it starts to form a base. Okay. What's your take on, uh, so relating to the commodities market, what's your take on, on calls for us just beginning to enter a, a pretty deep global recession? I got to tell you, you know, I think about this a lot. Um, you know, this has been going on for about a year. It's been going on since last summer. We were seeing big divergences between the manufacturing surveys, which, you know, were all below 50 and pointing towards a recession and actual economic activity, which is going through the roof, you know. I mean, just, you, you know, anecdotally, you can't get a reservation at a restaurant, uh, the roads are full of cars. Uh, you go to a mall and it's full, like just, it sure, it just does not seem like a recession. Um, and that, like I said, that divergence has been persisting for about a year now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the fed is genuinely going to pause rate hikes at this point. I don't think they're going to hike at the next meeting. Um, but yeah. Okay. And um, when you say you're holding gold, are you talking about physical? Are you talking about paper contracts or equities? Uh, it's it's mostly paper contracts. I have a little bit of physical, and I and I do have miners. I have quite a few miners. So. Okay. Okay. Do you look any further? Uh, what other precious do you look at? Silver, Jared? Are you exposed to silver right now? Uh, I have most, I have a little bit of silver. It's mostly physical. I actually have quite a bit of physical silver. So, okay. Um, which, which I bought when the premiums were like $3 an ounce. So really? So you've been holding for a while. Okay. Yeah. And what's the strategy there? Uh, strategy is sell it when it gets to a hundred. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. I like that. <laughs> Got it. Got it. All right. Um, are you looking at the copper market at all? No, I haven't looked at copper. No. Okay. okay. Nickel, anything outside in or anything within the base metal area? No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Um, anywhere else that you're looking for opportunity right now where you're, I know you're sitting on a lot of cash. And so I, I have to ask like, 
you know, you're probably thinking about when you're going to strike, what you might look for. And so what would that be? Uh, you might think that I was making a shopping list looking for stuff to buy, but I'm really not. Um, I can tell you that um, the bond market is pretty interesting at this point. Okay. Um, first of all, it, the front end of the curve, like if you look at the Fed funds futures curve, like we're pricing in super aggressive rate hike. So if you look at like the January 2025 contract, it's below 3%. Like we're pricing in the two handle on Fed funds in 2025, like aggressive amounts of rate hikes. Um, in terms of, you know, the long end of the curve, 10s and 30s, like there's a huge amount of short positioning. Um, I think that there's been a big short base that's built up ahead of the debt ceiling. I think people think that um, bonds are going to trade off in case of a default. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case. If you go back to 2011 during um, the S&P debt downgrade, that um, bonds actually rallied pretty significantly. So um, I've been thinking about taking a position in bonds, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Look, uh, Jared, I want to point people to your publications if they want to catch up with your, and you, you write the Daily Dirt Nap, which is a daily publication. Yep. Uh, which goes back to my earlier point about I don't know how you find the time to write so much, to be publishing books, writing a daily newsletter, um, three other publications that have regular rhythms. Uh, it's very, very impressive, to be honest with you. So where Thanks. can we point people? Yeah, where can we point people to uh, find out more from you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at Daily Dirt Nap. Um, you can subscribe to the Daily Dirt Nap. Just go to dailydirtnap.com. There's a subscribe button. Just hit the button. It sends me an email. I'll reply to the email. Um, you can check out my book, Those Bastards. It's been out for about a month and a half. It's actually my best reviewed book. It's gotten fantastic reviews on Amazon. It's a 4.7 on Amazon, which is pretty great. I saw that. Yeah, um, that's excellent. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and that's pretty much it. Okay, man. Look, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.